Welcome to the Bike Portland podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Maas. In this episode, I talk with Vivian Satterfield, one of Portland's busiest advocates whose work happens mostly behind the scenes as a member of many of the key committees, coalitions, and task forces that shape local and regional transportation policies. Vivian is Director of Strategic Partnerships at Verde Northwest, a nonprofit based in Northeast Portland's Coley neighborhood that builds environmental wealth through social enterprise, outreach, and advocacy. Just one example of Verde's work is that they organized, lobbied, and helped build Coley Park, which opened in 2018. She's also worked as a transit activist with Opal Environmental Justice Oregon. I wanted to talk to Vivian because she brings a layered perspective to her work as a mixed race, first generation Chinese American, born and raised in urban Chicago. She's also a former bike racer who's competed on the road and on the velodrome. Here's our conversation. Welcome, Vivian Satterfield. Thanks for coming down into the studio and recording with us. Yeah, it's great to be here in person. I feel like you have your hands in like um, a lot of different pots, and I thought it would be helpful for folks that maybe aren't aware of all the different things you're doing in the community. Like if you could just share an overview of what you're working on and what pots that you have your hands in at the moment. Oh, goodness. Uh, it's it's first thing in the morning. So let me see if my brain is warmed up to think about um, all the sort of communities that I'm engaged with. Um, so professionally, I'm the director of strategic partnerships at Verde. Um, I've been working for Verde for the past three years now. Um, so in that realm, I get to work on a lot of uh, transportation justice issues, housing justice issues, um, get to work on green spaces and parks, land use, um, and just plain old community organizing. Oh, and uh, a new realm of work for me actually is in water justice. So doing some statewide water justice work as well. I don't know how you have time for everything, but your your job at Verde is just one of the many things that that you do. And like I see your your face and your name popping up in different committees and task forces. Are are you working any of those currently? And can you share some of that? Yeah. So um, I uh, was so pleased actually just recently be part of the pricing options for equitable mobility, the POEM strategy team. So um, I was first invited to be on the task force because I applied. Um, and then through the support of the Energy Foundation, um, was asked to be a part of the strategy team working alongside the Bureau of Planning Sustainability and um, Portland Bureau of Transportation to to compile the um, all the sort of analysis, the technical um, expertise from international partners, uh, and uh, help facilitate that task force process. And now we're entering into that phase of actually putting together the report. And just so it's it's clear for folks uh, the kind of work you do when you're on these committees and, and that pricing uh, task force, just just one of of many that you've been involved in over the years. What who are you representing on these committees? You know, that's a really good question because I'm not there representing just myself, although I clearly am bringing a lot of my own personal lived experience um, into that space. Um, but I'm representing the constituency of Verde. Uh, and, you know, we're here in the city of Portland. We're based in the Cully neighborhood. So really representing folks um, who are are similar to the constitu- to our folks in Cully, you know, uh, working class people, um, people who may be undocumented, folks who, you know, typically don't have a lot of economic and income wealth in order to have a variety of transportation options and um, also have a high level of mobility because um, they may be renters and are subject to a lot of displacement. When I think about advocacy and just sort of being an effective change maker, one thing that I think is really valuable is perspective. I keep coming back to that word just in my own mind and thinking about like, I mean, especially in the last few years, like the way you have 
you personally see the world and your lived experience can have such a huge impact on sort of like the ideologies that you cling on to and the way you do your work and how you prioritize things. These are, this is all obvious to most people, but uh, perspective is so important. And I think, you know, looking at your life and your sort of lived experience, you have a really interesting perspective I'm assuming it seems like based on, on sort of what I've read about you in that, am I right, where your grandparents immigrated from China or no? What Tell me more about your perspective and how that informs like the work that you do. It's taken me, I think, a really long journey. I'm in my mid, mid 30s now. And only now, I think, I think I sent you a bio and then I was like, oh, I actually need to like amend it because um, I think when you are a mixed race person, when you have, um, you know, a, a long personal history and journey um, through through race and class and, and space, it takes, a, it takes a while to kind of sort that out. So um, I'm a mixed race, first generation Chinese American. So what that, what that means for me is that my mother is an immigrant. She immigrated from Taiwan as an adult after marrying my father in the mid 80s. Um, my father's a white American, was uh, born and raised in, in the Midwest. Um, and then I was born uh, in Chicago, Illinois. So I'm a city kid. Um, and I have a strong connection to my family, uh, which is kind of scattered throughout, uh, really Taiwan, Hong Kong. And then my parents have been living in Far East Asia, um, since the early 2000s. And that, that's an interesting background. How has that informed, like the, the way you do your advocacy work here in Portland? It's huge. I mean, I think throughout this last year, a lot of people have have come to realize that the personal is political. And for me, it always has been. Um, growing up in one of the most racially diverse neighborhoods in the city of Chicago, Rogers Park, um, you know, and then uh, moving to Portland in 2008, there's just a lot of things from my own lived experience, um, you know, wondering why at an early age, you know, my mother was a hotel worker. Um, why is that? Um, why is it that my neighborhood and the people who I see, the types of jobs that they have are different than the people who live in wealthier neighborhoods? And then, of course, moving to um, the Pacific Northwest was just a huge shift for me to to really understand regionalism and also to understand um, my through my own journey around race and class, come to understand a place better as well. Mm. And how... You you sort of you call yourself a like a policy shaper who has progressive values, and I, I wonder if you can share like a, a, a share an example like a specific example of sort of um, how that sort of manifests. One of the big ones that I was gonna we were gonna, I was gonna talk about a little bit later, but I think it might just fit now is like the metro transportation bond. I'm curious. So as as someone who shapes policy, builds power for coalitions, you know, low income people, people of color, people who usually uh, are, are sort of left out of the system and not at the table. How did you bring that and and also progressive values? How did you like package all that up and bring that into that metro conversation as as someone who worked at the getting there together coalition that crafted that that bond measure? Yeah, so that had such a long, uh, long front end to even get to the place in which we all collectively were talking about a ballot measure. But it really started back in, gosh, I'm really awful at times. So you're gonna have to fact check <laughs> 2017. Um, when, uh, you know, environmental justice and transportation justice advocates first caught wind that Metro was going to be, I'm sorry, that TriMet was going to be going to the ballot for the Southwest Corridor light rail um, and three highway projects, highway expansion projects. And uh, we got together and we were like, is that, is that what we think our communities need? Is that what we're hearing from our folks? And the answer was, well, no, of course not. And then politically, um, you know, if, 
if you're going to be harnessing all this power and bringing people together in order to ask them to ask the voters of this region affirmatively, how are you? How do you want to invest in our transportation future? Um, what do you want that down payment to look like? And what do you want the outcomes to be? We thought that question should be much more expansive and include issues of um, of displacement, um, issues of housing affordability. We wanted it to be a much more holistic picture. So I think that the the values are reflected through the way that the the question is even posed. What's the premise I mean, what well you might have to edit this but the question i always ask really frankly is like why do we give a shit you know we give a shit because we want our kids to have clean air and we want you know future generations to have a different sort of um investment in in transportation in access to opportunity in jobs and how this region is shaped and because we care so much that that future has to look different than the present that we're standing at now then our values have to have to be front and center when we have these conversations about funding mechanisms, for example. And so I think very quickly you get into this very wonky space in which you're debating widgets and you're debating mechanisms, but um, you always have to come back to why are we doing this? Why do we give a shit? Right. And so, for instance, with that metro transportation revenue package, um, it started as the Southwest Corridor and three big highway projects, and it ended up where it would have funded a bunch of uh, arterial corridors, uh, some of them in, in, in places where there's a lot of service workers trying to get around, poor bus service, things like that. So th- that, am I hearing that right? Like, that's how, that's how you and the, and the group that you were working with sort of manifested those values into this process that probably, I mean, if TriMet had their druthers, it would have been three highway projects in the Southwest Corridor. Sure. And I think it's all, it's also just about building power. And so I've always uh, been very clear and conscientious that we, we have to build both access and power on the inside. That's the inside game, as well as have a very, very strong outside game. And that typically, in my work, has been manifested through building large coalitions of fairly unlikely partners in order to to say, hey, these are the values and we're expressing that. And that external pressure helps folks such as myself, such as, you know, Climate Solutions, um, the Street Trust, you know, who are sitting at that table as organizational representatives um, push for more. I feel like you've been approaching uh, environmental justice, transportation justice issues from an intersectional standpoint before it was sort of cool. The way I see it, this this conversation about uh, transportation, including all these other issues that I think some people or a lot of people don't necessarily see as being connected. Uh, that to me seems like while we've been talking about for, for many years, it's really become in more contrast in the last couple of years. Um, and so, you know, I wonder, is that is that how you see it as well? Is this something where it's like from, you know, if, if I'm Vivian Satterfield, I'm like, yes, finally, people are really embracing this intersectionality. Is that is that the right way? Is that how you see it? I think it's I think it's wonderful that that people are doing the readings, doing the work, and that there's more people such as myself who've been a part of movements and we're really standing on the shoulders of giants of progressive liberation-based movements like the environmental justice movement. Um, you know, those when I became activated as a young person and and came to Portland in 2008 and got uh, first started with Opal Environmental Justice, I realized that the tale of history and the and the farm worker movements, for example, of um, Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta, you know, are connected to, you know, uh, immigration issues. And that connects to, to my family history as well, um, the history of Chinese Americans specifically in this country. 
And, you know, to, to have this long continuum of history helped me understand more the answers to the questions I always had, which started with why. Why is that? You know, and of course, growing up in Chicago, you know, a city with incredible racial diversity, but also really stark, uh, you know, disparities and redlining, you know, why is that? And so now I think we have a, a, a um, greater awareness and greater access and really good scholarship to understand, well, it's about land use. Um, it's about transportation. Um, it's about housing. And that the environmental justice movement isn't just about like the bunnies and the trees and the streams and something that's like very far away, but the urban environment is an environment and we have to care about all these intersecting issues. Yeah. And speaking of sort of the urban environment, you coming from Chicago, I I'm curious, what is your sort of transportation diet? How do you move around the city? What is your story? Uh, what's your transportation story? Yeah, my my earliest memory of transportation actually was getting woken up uh, in the pre-dawn hours by my mother, um, who was a hotel worker downtown in Chicago. And, and she would wake me up and, you know, start getting me ready and she'd be getting dressed for the day. And then we'd uh, we'd walk and we would put a token into the L stop um, in order to take the L. Uh, from Rogers Park, which is on the far north side of Chicago, uh, to, to the Loop, to downtown Chicago. And so uh, public transportation has always been integral to my life. Started riding public transit by myself um, probably around age 8, age 10. Um, I, took a t I went to school in the, the far north suburbs of Chicago and took transit by myself. And it wasn't until actually uh, it was undergrad. So I had a lot of different jobs, um, always much like my mother's path, uh, working in the service industry in downtown Chicago. And it wasn't until undergrad uh, at DePaul University that um, a friend of mine got me a bicycle. And I started riding the, <clears throat> the 10 plus miles from um, my home uh, where I was living at the time to my classes in downtown Chicago. Um, and that to me just like really opened up my eyes and got involved with hanging out with bike messengers. And, you know, it was like kind of like the fixie kid <laughs> era of Chicago. Oh, of course. Right. Um, and so that was really popular. And, you know, these are the, the you know, the guys and gals I go kick it with. So um, got into bikes and then uh, briefly actually got into mopeds. And there was this moped culture as well in Chicago. Um, so we would ride, you know, fixed gear bikes. Uh, I'd be on my moped, <laughs> you know, and we'd just ride around the city at night and explore it. And it just it really, really opened up um, so much of the city for me. I mean, Chicago geographically is a much, much longer, la larger city than than Portland. So um, for me, I always was, you know, trip chaining together, um, bus, you know, taking the L. Um, and then mopeds and bikes. And you've kept that, you've kept that bus thing that's kind of like a, a chip on your shoulder. You know, I know that you still bring into your work. I mean, you used to work before Verde, you worked at a, a, a Opal, which, which created basically um, had a whole uh, program, which was called what, Bus Riders Unite, which was building power for Bus Riders Union, yeah. Bus Riders Union, yeah, getting, building, you know, better service and, and getting, you help get, go ahead, go ahead. We, we won the um, campaign for a fair transfer, which now everyone benefits from uh, two and a half hour transfers. Yeah, and it strikes me that. I was listening to an interview you did several years ago, and you were sort of lamenting the fact that buses don't get uh, a really a fair shake in the media, and sort of culturally, buses are not seen as being, you know, as as glamorous or as exciting as rail. Uh, and this is Portland, where you know this is like one of the capitals of like people getting excited about rail and streetcars and all this stuff. But now it's it it occurs to me that now it's sort of like that script has sort of been flipped, especially with the Southwest Corridor not being uh, funded. Voters kind of didn't really pass that, the, the bond measure that would have paid for it. And so the Southwest Corridor light rail project is sort of on the shelf. 
And at the same time, we have the city of Portland really pushing buses like they never have with the Rose Lane project. And even TriMet's, you know, you know, been been doing a little bit more, but you know, they're still TriMet. Um, but but you know, does that how does that how does that feel to you? Do you think that's real? Do you think finally sort of bus service is getting its due? I want it to be real. I mean, I've always been a huge fan of buses. Uh, buses are so versatile. I mean, even when you look at our entire system, um, and if you think about that in the context of, you know, what sort of natural disaster is most likely to happen in this region, um, I think that buses are going to be the most long-term resilient thing. But but they're not popular. Um, and I think that is deeply ingrained in not just um, the way that we fund uh, public transit and we're we're sitting at a time in which this massive debate is happening uh, up in, you know, in D.C. about where and how to fund public transport, uh, how to fund transportation for the future. And public transportation is actually on the chopping block. And I, so I think I know that that buses are not popular. And I think a lot of that also is deeply ingrained in our own bu- personal biases around who rides the bus and why. Maybe buses aren't popular if, if you were to somehow be able to poll people in the public. but. They seem to be popular with politicians, at least in this moment, at least if, if you look at the fact that the Rose Lane is such a sort of leading priority at, at the city of Portland right now. Uh, I mean, is that is that how you see it? I mean, so do you see that the same way? Do you see, you know, bus service in Portland really becoming a lot, lot better, you know, in the near term? Ooh, I don't know if I do right now, to be honest. Um, I think that TriMet has a, a huge uh, part to play there, and I don't I don't get a sense of hearing enough from TriMet what that investment is going to look like. I do think this pandemic time has really shown us that people, uh, you know, remained on the bus, that they needed bus service um, specifically in order to access access jobs. Um, so, you know, I think the Rose Lane project is hugely successful because it does relieve buses out of congestion. And, you know, I think that a lot more people are th- truly thinking about where are the essential workers? Where do they live? Where do they need to get to go? And where are they getting stuck and losing time? Um, and you know, knowing that TriMet's ridership is still and always has been predominantly, uh, you know, lower income people who live further out, where service is actually not great. That resolving that congestion part in downtown Portland and in the central city um, is really going to have big benefits and and keep um, keep those folks moving. Right. As a bike-oriented person myself, um, I, I'm I'm a real fan of the idea that Bike Town, the bike share system, is public transit. Uh, I'm curious what you think about Bike Town. Do you think it's lived up to that moniker of being a, a public transit mode? Hmm. I think it can be. I mean, I, there's there's been a lot of shifts. Right. We had. Uh, the first iteration of Bike Town, which was geographically really centered, and even though it was messaged as being part of public transit, it, it really wasn't accessible to folks other than you know tourists and then people who are kind of zipping around you know uh, downtown and in between after they arrived downtown from another mode. So most of those folks probably were getting there not on Bike Town. Um, now with the and by the way, I have an e-bike now, so I totally love um, the electric bike town system that we have. But the pricing, um, I have some questions about. I'm sure that we've got a lot of options for those who qualify to have you know low income access and even a transportation wallet. Um, but I'm always curious about folks who are just above that threshold and yet still don't make enough to go ahead and invest in their own. Uh, e-bike, for example, or, you know, are sharing a car maybe with another household. Yeah. So bringing the price down 
you think would be a huge thing in making it making it more accessible to more people? I mean, probably. I mean, the a bus pass is still five bucks a day, and you can ride the entire system, um, or you know, two dollars and fifty cents. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of keeping it to biking. I think you're someone that could have a lot of good, um, you know, advice and input into uh, the way bicycle advocacy is done in Portland, which I think a lot of people know. Uh, has sort of had a comeuppance in recent years in terms of not fully appreciating, you know, how how white it was, how it didn't really acknowledge other experiences, how it was really focused in the central city. I mean, there's all these narratives around bike advocacy. And I think, you know, even prior to, you know, the summer of 2020, when there was a, a huge racial reckoning, as, as we all know, um, even prior to that, people had started talking differently about equity as it pertains to like sort of how traditional bike advocacy is done. So I'm curious from your perspective, um, just about the bike advocacy ecosystem in Portland in general, how do you see it now? Do you think it's learned some lessons in the last few years? Is it getting better? Is it any better than it was? Ooh, <laughs> that's a juicy question. Um, I, I think it's still yet to be seen. Um, you know, what do we, who do we define as being bike advocacy? Are we, are we saying that someone who shows up to uh, put post-it notes and, you know, at some sort of like pop-up charrette um, around a proposed, you know, greenway, are, are they bike advocacy? Um, or is it, you know, people who no matter what are getting out on their bikes and, you know, riding in the street um, and saying like, I belong here. Um, and I, you know, I care about this and I, I care about, um, you know, creating culture, uh, and community around that is, is that bike legit bike advocacy? So I think, um, the answer is probably all of that, right? Any, I mean, uh, the cycling team that I've, I've been a part of for many years, you know, they were saying the goal is more butts on bikes. And I think that's actually bike advocacy is the more the more bodies and more people who are getting on bikes um, and using it for recreation, using it um, for a good workout, using it for joy to build community. Um, that's all bike advocacy. Yeah. Do, do you did you were you aware of how um, the city of Portland uh, last fall was going to sort of bring a bunch of things to council around bicycling and they didn't end up doing it. It was good. We're going to release a new design guide, some other report, and just kind of, it was like an educational moment for like some incoming commissioners and, and stuff like that. They actually called it the council bike moment, but then they shelved it at the last minute. I think there was some concern from the commissioner of Peabot at the time, Commissioner U. Daly, that they wouldn't be able to sort of put a face on that presentation that, that was, uh, uh, that was, that had enough black people, people of color, you know, that, that was, they were worried that it, they would basically be perpetuating this narrative in Portland that bicycling is too white or it's all, you know, it's gentrification, all this stuff. It's almost like they felt like they didn't, they hadn't done enough work and they didn't, they were afraid to get called out in front of city council. Probably. <laughs> so you think that was a good move? I mean, how, did, were you aware of that? I mean, did, how does that sit to you? To me, that's been like, it's created a lot of mixed feelings about, oh my gosh, they did that. What does that mean? And like, was it the right move? Should it, you know, how critical should I be of them for making that decision versus like, how do you see that decision and that sort of that fear or timidity around making bicycling like a primary issue in that when those narratives are still so strong? Um, well, I'm not intimately familiar with the projects themselves, so I can't uh, offer my opinion there. But I think anytime folks are, you know, about ready to take it across the finish line and are looking around and saying, like, can we actually stand behind this? Do we think that we did this right? And is this reflecting the communities that we want to serve? And they go, yikes, I don't think so. And hold it back. I think it's actually a good thing. Um, 
you know, of course, it's how you see it. Is it, you know, do we have enough uh, black and brown faces to uh, give the thumbs up? Like, well, <laughs> if you, you know, that's a very probably cynical way of looking at it. Um, but I do think having the self-awareness to look around and saying, like, do we do we actually do the, the best engagement on this? Um, I think that that sort of self-awareness is what we are what we are asking for more and more um, with elected officials, especially because that's that's accountability. Yeah. And so if we if we both agree or if, if we agree that they made the right move and sort of shelving that and, and, and not moving forward at that time with this really bike centric presentation, um, do you, and, and if we agree that sort of that represents the fact that maybe PBOT hasn't come far enough in uh, their work around bicycling, or at least to change some of those narratives and to change that tide politically and publicly, do you, would you have any advice for them on how to do a better job at telling the story of what biking is in Portland in a more in a more real way or a more a more just way. Yeah, I mean, I don't know who is currently engaged like who who Peabot would consider as their constituency when they think about bicycles. Um is it you know, are they listening to the same voices who've always shown up for bikes or are they um going to different spaces and saying like, "Hey, how do you get around? What do you um have you ever used a bike? What are some of the barriers?" I mean, when I was at at Opal, um we actually did uh you know, this this um research study uh and survey alongside uh, Professor Aaron Golub at Portland State University to really kind of understand better East Portland mobility um and you know how folks were getting around and there's still a lot of barriers for people to access bikes um storage is a huge issue um I, I think a lot of people including myself who i mean i got gobs of bikes um <laughs> yeah but i also have a garage because i'm a homeowner right um i had a bike when i was an apartment dweller but it really limited what what i was using it for um and where i was getting around and so i think that um you know, when Peabot is asking these questions about like the bike constituency, I don't know, I, I kind of hate that because, you know, you all get around in different ways. I mean, I, I drive, I ride a motorcycle, I ride bicycles and I ride public transit. So, so which entry point is Peabot asking me to identify myself? Because I'm, I'm not, I don't see myself as just one thing. Yeah. That reminds me when you said entry point, they, they've changed the, the Peabot, the city website's changed, but I remember for years you would go to the Peabot homepage and the first thing that popped up was choose what you are. Right. Yeah. Like motorist, cyclist, pedestrian, transit user. And I, that bothered me for so long that you had to actually click to identify as something, which I was like, that gets away from the whole thing of like. And it's super frustrating and it perpetuates this idea that, you know, uh, people who ride bicycles somehow aren't paying into our infrastructure when the reality is that, you know, most cyclists are also, you know, driving a car and are paying registration fees and taxes and, you know, whatnot. Right, so right. you were talking about um, you were talking about East Portland. Um, and I know you've you've worked quite a bit out there. And I know like with Opal, I think you did you were kind of based more out there. Now you're you're in sort of part of East Portland, but you're Northeast Portland. You do a lot of work in Coley. But in terms of um, thinking about East Portland, I always think about like the equity thing and how years for years there was such a strong vein of saying, you know, it's it's really unfair in East Portland. There's not enough investment. But it occurs to me that, you know, both the city and the state could really could point to in the last several years, like tens of millions of dollars in investment. I mean, there's certainly at least on paper. Now, I don't know if all these projects have been actually built. I know some of them right. have, have languished, but there's been a tremendous amount of 
recognition that equity was a problem in East Portland. There's not enough like good transportation services and infrastructure out there. And I think whenever that question comes up, the, the response I get from ODOT is like, but look at $65 million in the last and another hundred million over here. Like, where do you think Portland is on that conversation about Central City versus East Portland and like transportation investment equity? Like, where are we at in from in your mind? Yeah, I think that East Portland has suffered from decades of uh, underinvestment and active disinvestment. I mean, after being annexed to the city of Portland in the mid 80s, there wasn't a lot done. Right. And that that bred a lot of resentment for longtime residents um, and new residents coming in. You know, that's the very edge of affordability in our region, in our city, rather. Um, I think you know, uh, the waves of gentrification and displacement that have happened from the central city have only exacerbated that um, into Gresham as well. So, um, you know, to now say, well, look at all of this money that we're throwing at it. It's like, well, if you were to map that over time, you know, is that really, is that equitable? Is that reaching um, the need that people have? And I think as long as we still have some of our highest crash corridors, as long as we still have um, people dying in East Portland um, because of the lack of lighting, because of the lack of, you know, safe pedestrian and, you know, crossings, um, then we still have a long way to go. Yeah. And it's like a matter of how confident you are that that these agencies that are spending money are actually spending it on the right things or in the right way. Yeah, I don't think anyone, you know, anyone's going to say like, oh, yeah, ODOT's doing a great job. <laughs> yeah, which brings me to another topic of 82nd Avenue, which, you know, has got had such big news recently with the, the fact that it's going to finally at least start the process of transferring its jurisdiction from the state to the city. And there's all this money attached to that. And I've I've heard from, a, you know, a source or so in, in PBOT who's like, I don't know why people think much is going to change. Like, you know, maybe the city isn't even going to be able to make the right investments out there on, on 82nd. So there's that. But I wonder if you, you know, how, what, what was your feeling after you heard the news on 82nd and are, you know, how hopeful are you that it's going to finally become like a humane main street? Oh, I don't, I mean, I, I hope that one day we can see 82nd Avenue as a humane main street. It's it's the main corridor for me. Um, I live in the Foster Powell neighborhood and, you know, used to work with an office on 82nd Avenue that I would cross multiple times a day on foot, bike and moto, which is yeah. <laughs> which is not fun. Um, you know, so I was, of course, you know, so elated for all the advocates who pushed so hard in the state legislature to secure some investments, um, you know, thrilled for Representative Pham, especially, you know, such a strong, um, you know, being a freshman legislator, um, you know, bringing home some wins uh, to the community. And I don't have an answer for what 82nd Avenue should look like. I, you know, it's it's complicated. I, I feel for the, the business owners who are concerned about how to get their goods um, and how to get, you know, um, how to get a business you know, in traffic into their shops. I also empathize a lot because um, I am a motorist who's driven on 82nd Avenue that it shouldn't be like driving on the surface of the moon. <laughs> you know, the, the, it's got to be a lot better. Um, so I don't I don't know if I have the the best answer um, for what it what the humane solution for 82nd Avenue is. Um, but I think through the coalitions that are being built right now, um, being led by Oregon Walks and other groups, um, that there's some nodes and some some pressure points that we can definitely make a lot safer. Mm, so specific sections of it that may yes. be able to be sort of like bitten off in a little chunk here and there. 
yes, I yeah. think I think that's that's going to be the biggest improvement that folks are going to see right away to 82nd Avenue. Hmm. Yeah, and you mentioned Rep Pham, who's you know, one of the leading uh, advocates pushing for that, and is now down in Salem. She one of the things I think uh, one of the interesting positions that she is sort of allowed to bubble up a little bit is busting the Highway Trust Fund and making it so that we can spend more of the state money. I guess federal money has some of the similar strings, but state money that's created by motor vehicle fuels and taxes and gas tax and all that stuff, which is by Oregon Constitution only allowed to be spent on the highway right of way, uh, which has a definition that can include some paths on the side of highways, but we know how those usually go. So just to to bring it back to that idea of, op- so Rep. Fam has sort of opened up this Pandora's box of an idea. And it's it's significant because she's actually a state legislator. She's no longer just, you know, an advocate working on this. She's not just like us yelling yeah. at the sidelines. Yeah. Well, it's a thing. I mean, when you're an elected official and you say these things, it's a, it hits a little different. Uh, and so she's actually said it a few times that that's something that she'd be interested in, in working on or that she thinks is important, I should say. I mean, do you think that that's even, first, like I was, you know, do you think it's, do you see that as a possibility? Do you think that could happen? And I'll ask like sort of, how would you build a coalition to do that? Oh, Jonathan, we're already doing it. So um, through the Clean and Just Network, um, uh, working with Oregon Environmental Council, Climate Solutions, Fourth Mobility, uh, we're creating a statewide network to be able to uh, incubate regional coalitions, such as the Getting There Together Coalition uh, in the region here. So even though the sequencing is a little bit different, um, you know, Getting There Together obviously preceded the Clean and Just Network. Um, there's a lot of interest and momentum in in education, uh, in, in policy wins, and in building the coalition of the willing to say, what does a path towards, you know, reforming the way that we fund and spend transportation at a statewide level, the really root cause of transportation injustice. When you look at, a, a, you know, the funding mechanisms, um, we're, we're doing that already. First, it's sort of, you know, folks looking at each other and saying, uh, you know, this needs to happen, right? And, you know, myself and others, my colleagues at uh, at Opal, you know, has been saying we need to bust the trust for many, many years. So I'm, I'm glad that, you know, I'm not surprised, obviously, that Rep. Fam is talking about it because we have been talking about it for many years already. Wow. So so go back. And sorry that I don't know about this group, but if we just rewind, it's called the Clean and Just Transportation Network. Transportation Network. And it's organizing coalitions around, specifically around... Um, reusing highway fund dollars for other things or is that just one of the projects? that's one of the projects so um the anchor organizations are verde uh fourth mobility oregon environmental council and climate solutions and we started uh having some initial conversations on you know how do we um what do we need to do to have a greater impact at this intersection of you know clean just transportation options for the state the scale has to be at the state level. Um, and so we started building this network um, in order to start sharing uh, education, bringing in speakers, um, you know, start to think about, you know, what do we need to do to get folks the tools they need across the state to be able to enter into these conversations and enter into transportation advocacy spaces. So um, we have two different work groups. One's based on transportation electrification, uh, which is a, a key strategy for a, you know, clean and just future. Um, and then another table, which I anchor um, alongside Sarah Wright at Oregon Environmental Council um, is around transportation funding. So we played a lot of defense this last legislative session on the road user fee and around um, some legislation which uh, did not go the way we wanted to see in terms of transportation investments and tolling. 
But the goal is to talk about, you know, how can we build the power and how can we build the coalitions that are necessary in order to get um, big, transformative, real wins, um, like transforming our uh, transportation funding system and the Highway Trust Fund. Yeah, speaking of building power at the state legislature, are there some people down there, I mean, besides Rep. Fam, are there other legislators that you are hopeful for, or maybe people in the wings? And I'm also going to ask you locally, too, as well, but what about the state legislature? Are there folks that, that, that listeners should be paying attention to? There has been a lot of shifts in the state legislature, and there will continue to be a lot of shifts. I think that this uh, past freshman class, um, you know, including Rep. Fam and some of the other legislators in this region are... Um, are interesting to continue to follow. And we will see there will probably be a resorting of positions of power and who's being assigned to different committees. So um, I'll be learning alongside other people as, as those assignments come out. And how about locally? Uh, I'm, I've been noticing that the, the Metro Council races are looking more and more interesting by the day um, with uh, Ashton Simpson, uh, currently executive director of Oregon Walks, who's going to be running for a seat. Also, Juan Carlos Gonzalez, who's currently counselor, going to be you know running again for his keeping his seat. Uh, are you know are those um are how do you how are you feeling about the direction of Metro Council at this point? I'm feeling very hopeful. Um, I, Duncan Wong, I believe, is also uh, you know seeking an appointment as well. Okay, I guess I could have said that, but I didn't want to. I didn't want to say it before it was supposed to be public. Be public. So <laughs> I just realized that this won't get out until I'm sure it's going to be public. So that's fine. Okay. Yeah. And Duncan as well. So yeah. Um, I mean, I've endorsed uh, Ashton Simpson. Um, you know, I really enjoyed working alongside Juan Carlos Gonzalez as well. And um, I think that he's definitely drawn a line in the sand as well, saying that he's not willing to to vote for, um, you know, any measures that will continue to invest in highway expansion projects. So these are these are the sort of decision makers that our community has been asking for um, and also cultivating um, and now propping up. So I absolutely stand behind both of them and excited to work with them in this position. True, because in some ways, the, the kind of work and organizing that you do is specifically about building power. And here we are fast forwarding to years of that kind of work. And we have people that, you know, don't look like other elected officials necessarily in Portland that are that are starting to feel themselves and get in positions of power. Absolutely. I mean, we have to cultivate that pipeline of leadership. Yeah, that's great stuff. What about City Council, Portland City Council? Um, I have. Uh, is there some interesting names that people should know about on there? There's Jamila Dozier. Is that yes. how you say? Yes, their, I was just. Um, I I actually I was trying to remember their name because I have not met them, but um, you know from what I know of them and reading about them, super excited. Um, you know, I would love to get to know her more and of course uh, see if there's an opportunity for another Black Tina to run for office, much like my current executive director at Verde, Candace Avalos. Yeah, I was going to say, what's it like working with uh, Candace Avalos? Oh, she's awesome. I'm so happy that we were able to recruit such a sharp, um, funny, um, you know, eager learner such as Candace uh, to completely jump into the environmental justice world and who has such credibility in our communities. Yeah, so it's interesting because we we very recently are having, you know, such more awareness of the lack of social justice and need for more power among, you know, black people and people of color and people that have been typically under underserved um, in just in the last two years. But the, the work to build to bring these kind of leaders to the fore 
definitely predated all that. But now we're sort of bearing the fruit of some of that work, and we're having it seems like a, a an exciting crop of leaders uh, that are coming up. So I think it's pretty clear to me, like what if you look out at the landscape that that you're hopeful for those sort of things. Are there any red flags? Are there some things looming that are a concern of yours in in the work that you do that that you want folks to know about? Well, actually, I want to kind of go back to what you were just saying because you know our we've always been doing this work. Verde is a 15-year-old organization. You know, we we built Cully Park, um, for example, in, in more recent times. So I think that the the fact that the, there's a greater awareness that organizations like Verde are, like, doing the work, that are moving money, that are building power, um, I'm, I'm sort of like, yeah, like, thanks for the acknowledgement now. But like, we've always been doing this work. We've always, uh, you know, wielded power and have got things done in our communities. So it's about it's, time that everyone else recognized it. <laughs> right, right. Like you're ready for this moment. You've been ready for the moment. Absolutely. Like, we're ready for it. Unfortunately, it took a while for people to sort of flip that switch and, and say, oh. And we're going to continue doing this work. And when, you know, when uh, I hope that folks will always have a focus on on this work. But, you know, it's uh, people's interests are really fickle. And, you know, um, it, it, it may move away. <laughs> but, you know, we'll still be here for our communities. Absolutely. Okay. And. And before I let you go, I definitely wanted to ask you about bike racing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because you are also a bike racer, and you did Was. say— <laughs> I don't race bikes anymore. Well, okay, well, you like to go fast on bikes. <laughs> and you said you—when you said you were around, like, the messenger cruise in, in Chicago, I was like, oh, that's it. Because you also did some track racing. You like going around on the fixed gear on the oval at, at Alpenrose and yeah. stuff. Yeah, so. that's how I got my, uh, my, my start in bike racing, actually. I, I, uh, I rode my bike uh, over to the velodrome for a women's bike clinic. And in my mind, I didn't know anyone. I rode by myself there. And in my mind, I was like, well, if I can get on the velodrome on the first go, I'll give it a shot. And I, I did. <laughs> so to my surprise, wow. and maybe a little bit of my dismay, like I was like, okay, I'm, I'm committed now. Um, and was just so exciting, uh, even riding home. But I actually, I took the wrong exit on my bicycle and ended up on the Ross Island Bridge. And to this day, I don't think I've ever ridden my bike any faster than I did that day <laughs> riding home. <laughs> you weren't still on a track bike, were you? No, no, I, I was did. on my road bike. Um, but yeah, I got my start in track racing, mass start track, track racing, and did that for a number of years. And uh, I met so many amazing friends and people who are still, you know, a big part of my life. Cool. Have you have you been able to um, bring over any any folks like from the over racing community or like what can you say about like cross pollinating some of that crew over into like you know showing up at city hall and testifying for for other things that you care about there's a lot of folks who are cross pollinated um in that way uh you know clint culpepper is um you know a very good personal friend of mine um you know my, my partner stephen beardsley is the president of obra who um you know is is uh, actually recently talked to commissioner rubio about you know what access to pir can look like mm. um and expanding that access um especially now with the loss of our velodrome um you know what are those options and, and how can we do that um, Nisi Cobb, uh, you know, they and I uh, race together. Clearly, they're much more um, decorated cyclists and much faster than I am over at the Community Cycling Center and also part of OBRA. Um, so, those are just some of the names of, you know, my close personal friends and network who are cross pollinating and, and doing a lot of the work in different spaces and still enjoy um, putting on the, the spandex pants and <laughs> going for a bike ride. Is there anything else that you want to share that we didn't talk about that you want to make sure we get in there? Um, just to, you know, keep your eyes out for bikes and motorcyclists, especially as the days get darker and we're all in this together. And I know you've, you've had a bad run in with a car 
several years ago. Yes, on Division. Um, oh, was, that was Division. Yeah, it was you Division. When I used to live in the Brooklyn neighborhood, um, before some of the transportation improvements now, there's only really one way to get into the neighborhood and one way to get out. And I was uh, rear-ended at 35 miles an hour by a car when I was on my bicycle and um, was incredibly fortunate to um, have not necessarily walked away, but to have survived that crash. Wow, wow. Another thing that informs the work that you do. Absolutely. Awesome. I really like the work that you do, Vivian, and like just how you approach it. I'm, I'm really grateful for it. So thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much. That was Vivian Satterfield, Director of Strategic Partnerships at Verde Northwest. The Bike Portland Podcast is a production of Pedaltown Media Incorporated and is made possible by listeners just like you. If you're not a subscriber yet, please become one today at bikeportland.org slash support. You can listen to more episodes and find out how to subscribe to our podcast at bikeportland.org slash podcast. Our theme music is by Kevin Hartnell. I'm your host, Jonathan Maas. And until next time, thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the streets.